Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Published or not, and we have authors to talk about and authors to talk to and books. Oh, we do, we do. I'm going to start right away with Rachel Leary. Now, she's written a story set in a new town that will grow into a big city, but the tale is told nearly 200 years ago. Well, welcome to 3CR Published or Not, Rachel. Thank you. And where have you set your story? Yes, in Van Diemen's Land. It's set in 1826 and 27. Well, Van Diemen's Land was being settled mainly by convicts and after six months on a boat, the captain of that boat would know which would be the better women, those ones that would be less disruptive. What, what would usually happen to those better, nicer women? Well, they, they, they had a system. They didn't really actually have anywhere to put them, which was sort of one of their problems. So they kind of had to do something with them as soon as they got in. They didn't really have anywhere to store them, essentially. <laughs> so, um, yeah, pe- people would sort of sign up for their convict servants and come down to the docks. And, I mean, they did try to match them up, depending on what their experience was for so jobs. So better p- convicts would go to the more professional perhaps people in town. Yeah, depending on whether they had trades or, or whatever and, and, and later on if you were badly behaved you sort of got sent inland. So no, if you were badly behaved you sort of got to a lesser master and then inland yes. to the interior. Pretty much. <gasps> oh. Well, I'd like you to read a bit about all of this from page 39. Hmm. The constable took her down through the town and to the jail. She was charged with insolence and disorderly conduct, sentenced to time in the stocks, then to be reassigned. For two swollen hours, she stood in the middle of the town, locked into a timber frame, her jaw tightening against the pane, ladies moving slightly closer together as they passed, lengthening their step. She was a few weeks in the jail then, taken every day to the hospital to wash blood from sheets and bandages. She'd just grown used to the hemorrhage of women that was the women's wing of the jail, or the female factory as it was known. When the matron told her one morning she would not be going to the hospital that day, instead she was taken down the hill to Johnson's, to the pale slug and his stolid, watchful wife. And Johnson, you know, she's told very quickly that Johnson is not a very nice master. Yes, her friend at the pub says to her, Johnson, master at that new place you're at, girl who were there a while back got took back to the jail. He's bastard in her belly. Mm. So we're talking about her, and her is also the title of this book, Bridget Crack. Um, Poor Bridget, we uh, find out about what happens to her. And quite often it's the circumstances around her that make things happen, as is... Captain Marshall. Now, it's, this is where she first goes and they first meet. And it's one of the very few descriptions we get of Bridget um, Crack in this book. How about just telling us what Captain Marshall sees when he looks sees Bridget Crack? Mm. Even now that she'd been gone some time, she continued to enter his thoughts. He did not know at all what had caused his interest in her. Had it been the unsettling sea-green eyes, the mole that sat teasingly above her lip near the side of her mouth, 
which might have been ugly, but instead was, he had to admit, enticing. She'd been sharp, he thought, clever. Clever, clever. Mm. So all through this book, we see Bridget Crack through the reactions of how other men look at her. But as a writer, you described not to write, tell us about her emotions at mm. all of this. Why? Because a lot of the time, two reasons. A, I, partly because of her character. I, I feel like she's very private. I don't, I think she, a lot of the time she's not in situations which really allow her a great deal of reflection. She's kind of reacting and responding. I think also she ends up in, she's in quite traumatic situations and I, at the time when she's in them, I don't think she can process them. And I think she's often dealing with emotions like shame and I feel like they're very, they're very buried. And I've also felt like it, it's hard for her to even access kind of what's going on for her and I'm using quite a close third person, so I'm 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 in quite close with her. So I had to make choices of where I sort of, and I also felt this sense of her not really. I, I ended up trying to tell a story of a character who doesn't necessarily want people to know what's happening to her or mm. for her, and and how did I deal with that as a writer was a big question for me throughout the whole book. So. We don't get that much physical description going on in this book, but what we do do, do get is description of the bushland, the uh, roaring rivers and the towering columns of rock. Now, um, Brid, uh, Rachel Leary, you studied cultural geography. Hmm. So did this help you to see and explain the terrain? Uh, I, I think I did a lot of bushwalking and whitewater rafting hmm. when I was living in Tassie, so... Um, you know, I had a lot of experience of, of that landscape and also, you know, camping and stuff as a kid. I think the cultural geography sort of helped me think about it from different characters' point of view in terms of how they might be experiencing that landscape because that's sort of what cultural geography uh, does. Look, it was so harsh. It was raining every day. It was, <laughs> the bush was so thick. There was these mountains that she had to climb. Oh, it was phenomenal. And, of course, she finds herself lost who finds her? Ah, Bush Rangers. Mm. Math, well, um, Matt Sheedy, his name is. And Henry and Sam and the horrible Butters. Yeah. Why is she so threatened by him? Because he's revolting. And he just wants to rape her. <laughs> he's, he's hideous. <laughs> Sorry about Butters. <laughs> so then there's um, Matt's protection. Um, he... Matt is the lead uh, bushranger. He does offer protection, but he's also very jealous of her. And of all the things, he goes and he bushrangers or steals a dress for her, which is just so ridiculous for the terrain she has to walk in. And we never really know whether, you know, is there any feeling be between them? It's... it's um, it's rather need and necessity. But he has a dream. What's his dream of escape? I can't believe this. <laughs> uh, he's going to China. China. <laughs> but that's actually taken from history. That's what the Bushrangers wanted to do. They wanted to go to China. Really? Yeah. So yep. there's, there's historical <laughs> research. Yeah, they were trying to get to China. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm a bit I'm a bit surprised. I don't by know that. if that's where dig a hole to China comes from. I'm not sure. Maybe there was a time when they all wanted to go to China. No, well, they stole boats. Uh, one of the places to go was China. Yeah. Uh, because they'd be caught if they went anywhere else exactly. and returned to prison. Yeah. Ah. Oh, thank you, David, once again. <laughs> well, of course, while she's with these bushrangers, they live rough and remotely, and what choice does she have until she's left with Sully? Why did she feel comfortable with Sully? Oh, he's just not as he's not as unhinged as the others that oh. she was with. He's a little more... He has a pretty different understanding, I think, of the situation he's in as well. He's kind of managed to find a way to be in that kind of terrain. He knows a little bit more about it. He understands the culture that's around him a bit more. Well, it's not for very long, unfortunately, for poor poor Bridget Crack. She um, finds herself out again by herself and this time she finds that she's written about on posters because she can read and write. Um, Bridget Crack, and she she realises there's a price on her head, 50 guineas or 50 acres of land, or if a prisoner, a free pardon. Now, <sighs> so it's it, who can she trust? <laughs> yes, well, that's the question. So we've got all of this harshness and then we come to a poem. What's the poem that you've given us? Oh, it's a Wordworth poem. I wandered lonely as a cloud. And of course, it sort of seems so easy. And to be alone and be questioning yourself and daffodils, you know, they, they're out on pasture. They're not in this rough terrain. Why did you include that poem? Uh, well, it's in the other point of view. It's in Captain Marshall's point of view. So he's quite contrasted to her, her in that he is really reflective and he does have the sort of space and time and capacity to be reflective so, you know, that's he, he's kind of is often trying to figure things out. And it's mm. also that uh, for him, he's dealing with these two Van Diemen's Land being such a different landscape to the, the one he's used to in England. So I was, you know, that poem sort of talks quite a lot about daffodils and, you know, yeah. it's a very different sort of world he's dealing with. But it's the loneliness too because his mm. own life circumstances are most unhappy. He's got a, a terrible marriage. He's not good at adventuring. I think, you know, we sort of sort of see this guy who sort of gets lost trying to find the other side of the mountain. <laughs> and um, he dislikes his career of carrying out orders he may not agree with. But his sister Jane is so much more at home in Van Diemen's land. She understands and enjoys the environment and the people and she she actually understands the Aborigines. Not yeah. understands, but um, she's thoughtful of them. She is. I mean, she's quite religious. So, you know, and, you know, that was one of the things I found interesting to read at the time was, you know, that a lot of the people that were more compassionate towards them, you know, were quite religious. Often they would sort of, but but it was still, you know, that they're obviously thinking about them through their way of understanding things and there's sort of that thing of wanting to educate them and bring them to God. It was still very much that like, well, we can save them mm. by bringing them to our point of view. And, of course, anybody who knows any history about Tasmania knows what happens. And it's, it's just prior to this. But we, let's bring this back to Bridget because her only interaction is when she actually comes across two Aboriginals and they want something of hers. But it's really not hers either. 
It's no. the kangaroo. Yeah. So it's a kill kangaroo and um, they want that, you know, after they've been killed and hung for stealing sheep. Mm. Well, uh, you know, a lot of the problem for the Aborigines is that their their hunting grounds were being taken oh, over. Absolutely. So... so um, Bridget has so little. I think one of the most saddest bits that I read was, you know, up in a cave, she trains a dog to hunt, so she's rather good at that. And it's the saddest piece of writing when she places everything she owns out in front of, in front of her and it's such a small collection. Oh, and it's so harsh. So what happens to Captain Ma- uh, Marshall and Bridget Crack? You'll have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rachel Leary, it is just, I, I was absolutely stunned. And before I go on, I would really like Rachel to read one little bit about the terrain she writes about. And Tasmania, we all know it's cold. It's not raining here. It's just all snowed under. Winter in the valley had a face, a white ice face with no eyes a voice that spoke through the cold, bad blabbering of the river. The river flowed over rocks and played a tune of them. Each one it touched a different pitch. It stroked and conjoled them, and they told their musical stories that fell on all but deaf ears. The white face of winter felt nothing. It was a beautiful criminal, adept. When the white ice face died, it would give off no smell. No smell, no smell. A woman's struggle for survival in a beautiful and brutal landscape. That's what Bridget Crack was all about. Thanks very much, Rachel. Thank you. Jan, I don't have a book today. Oh. Rather, I have thousands of books and hundreds (laughs) of authors. I have the Melbourne Writers Festival, and it's all encapsulated in one person, uh, Jessica Alice, who is our guest today. So, Jessica, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much. Oh, I, f- I feel immense pressure, but also value right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all the pre- yes, it's all falling upon you. Now, previously we've had Lisa Dempster in, who was the festival director, and it sort of became a tradition getting somebody in from the Melbourne Writers Festival. But what's your role with the festival? I'm the program manager at Melbourne Writers Festival, so I... Um, as it suggests, I manage all aspects of the program, which includes um, uh, creating the events with our director, Lisa, um, and also managing all of our artists and our partnerships with other organisations and journals and things like that. What are the challenges of that role? Uh, well, there's, there's, it's the scope, I suppose. Um, it's, a, it's a very large festival. We have about... Um, 400 artists and about 250 events. So it's really the logistics um, of a festival that size. Um, And I suppose also when we're in a city like Melbourne that is so um, blessed with an abundance of literary um, events and institutions, it's about um, finding a way to make programs that are really relevant um, and uh, leading uh, conversations as well as responding to things that are happening as they happen. Well, you've said 400 authors, 250 events. I'm having difficulty getting my mind around all of that. How do you, in the festival offices, cope with that that magnitude? Spreadsheets, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, managing that amount of information requires um, a lot of communication between everyone in our team um, and having really good processes about how we... Um, 
about how we uh, use that information and keep track of it. So it's a bit of practice as well. But also then, I mean, you're a creative person, um, poet and such like, that creative side, but it sounds like you're having to switch in the other part of your brain in terms of the logistics. Yeah, it's uh, so my role is really um, is really half creative and half logistical. So the, the first half of the, the festival plan like of the year of the year is planning the festival um so creating the program coming up with the events and all those concepts and everything which is really artistic and creative and fun and then once that's done and the program is finished then it's the delivery side so it's actually about making all of these things happen so you do have to think both ways and there's another number we can uh, call upon the reach of the festival how many people do you Last year, we had over 73,000 people coming to the festival, um, and we expect that it'll be similarly as massive this time. So what then do you think the influence of the festival is, if it's touching bases with 73,000 and more? I think the one of the great things that writers' festivals do is um, uh, show the leadership of writers um, as thinkers, um, as political voices, um, as uh, as social activists, a lot of our writers are um, are novelists, but we also have journalists, academics, um, philosophers, um, artists, all of those um, across all sorts of genres. Um, so it's not just about um, not just about books, but also about what do these things mean, um, and how are we um, on the one hand reflecting the world, but also influencing it and how are we influencing those conversations and that's an important responsibility of writers festivals and writers well speaking of influence the theme is revolution how did you come up with that it uh it happened pretty organically um uh lisa dempster and i as we were going through uh, all of the books that were being published um and as we were meeting with publishers as we were talking to people um we kept finding that everything that was happening in the world um, was leading to this idea of um, resistance or rebellion or all these kinds of ideas with um, with this sort of um, rising conservatism that's um, been emerging all over the globe, really. Um, we, found, we felt that revolution just seemed to be the natural thing that was necessary for now. So that's reflected in the program in a few different ways. Um, so obviously 2017 is the centenary of the Russian Revolution, so where we've got a few events uh, focusing on Russia with historians. Um, we've also looked at um, revolutionaries in history, so um, women who have uh, been integral to activist movements. Um, and we also have uh, representation of different um, activist groups, uh, like right now, which is human human rights organisation who have programmed a whole day of events called Protest and Persist, which is all about tips for social justice activists. Um, so it's reflected throughout the program in so many different ways. Mm. Well, I mean, one of the ways, which is very relevant at the moment in the discourse in Australia, constitutional recognition. You've got Kim Scott opening, giving the opening address. So Kim Scott, uh, who is um, one of Australia's most celebrated uh, authors, he's won the Miles Franklin twice. Um, he's uh, a Noongar man from Western Australia, and he's written uh, an incredible new novel called Taboo, um, which is all about... Um, the idea of our shared histories, Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal histories, 
um, and how we can uh, rediscover our relationships with each other and how we can um, understand our connections. Um, in his keynote speech tomorrow night, um, he'll be talking about uh, the way that he, as an Indigenous man, has written himself into history through fiction um, and also talking about how we can, I suppose, revolutionise the way that we think about our connection to language and land. Um, but as you mentioned, constitutional recognition, we also have um, Shireen Morris, who is a uh, cultural um, reform fellow, um, and she'll be joined in conversation um, with Jill Gallagher and Janine Leanne, uh, talking about uh, cultural recognition and treaty. Um, and that will be a fabulous event as well. That's one of our big ideas sessions. But it's such a, a quintessential topic in terms of establishing the Australian identity. I mean, it's all been put in the political sphere of the wording of the Constitution, which is very dry. But in many ways, in terms of our own identity, how we move forward, it could be very interesting. Yeah, I think so. So that will be a... Um, so those sessions, big ideas, are um, often with academics and uh, experts in their particular field. Um, we also have some other wonderful events um, with some brilliant Indigenous writers. We have an event called Aboriginal Literature Now, which also features um, Kim Scott, um, Jane Harrison and Claire Coleman, who's a fabulous debut novelist. Um, and... We also have some performance events that will be responding to these, um, again, the idea of revolution, but also um, the idea of um, solidarity. Uh, so we have a fabulous performance event uh, on the second weekend of the festival on Saturday night called Louder Together, which is about the idea of writers um, leading the resistance um, against um, bigotry and against hate um, with some of our fabulous um, local and international writers in the festival. I just want to tell the listeners that Jessica doesn't have any notes in front of her. She's calling all of this <laughs> off the top of her head. I mean, all the 400 uh, authors and, and 250 events, you seem to be in contact with them all. It's like you've got a spreadsheet in your mind. <laughs> I've, I've looked at them a lot <laughs> and I've spoken to all these artists quite a lot as well. <laughs> I mean, another one, Robert Fisk talking about um, foreign intervention in uh, places like Syria and, and Iraq, but it's not a case of winning the war because the implications of these uh, go beyond that conventional thinking of winning and losing. Um, the ramifications are far more, um, well, threatening, dangerous. Uh... Yeah, so Robert Fisk is um, a journalist uh, with the Independent newspaper in the UK. He's been their foreign correspondent for about 30 years and he's lived for most of that time in Beirut um, and he spends a lot of time in Syria now. I believe he may be may have just left Syria. Um, he's talking about the, I guess, the influence of the American military um, in the Middle East and the way that often um, Western powers have treated foreign countries as the places where they have their wars that we um, in the West often think of wars as happening in other places. And he's going to um, pose the idea that perhaps we are not quite as safe, we're not as uh, distanced from that as we um, have had the luxury for so long for thinking that we are. Mm. Now, Lisa wouldn't uh, answer this question when I asked her last year because she didn't want to play favourites, but your favourites? Oh, there's there's just <laughs> there's far too many, obviously. <laughs> 
You don't have to be diplomatic here. It's only this is a conversation between you and me. No one else is listening. There's, What's your favourite? There's quite a few sessions that I'm incredibly excited about. Um, we have a a young woman um, from the UK. She's a journalist. Her name is Rennie Edo Lodge. Um, she's written this fabulous book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Uh, which is based off a viral blog post that she wrote in 2014 and she's written a book about it. And so obviously she still is talking to white people about race um, because the book exists. Um, And it's brilliant and I think it has um, many resonances here in Australia. She writes about um, the history of um, anti-discrimination law in in the UK, about um, immigration law and about how racism has never really been um, accepted or... Has, uh, has never been recognised, um, that it's always been uh, sort of um, that we've tried to hide it from view or we've hide, tried to deny that it exists. So she's writing um, about how race has existed, as, uh, racism has existed and still does um, and how we need to be confronting it and how we, how we need to understand the intersection of race and feminism, race and class and all these things. So she's an incredible thinker. Um, and there's a few. We've got all these really big, uh, really big international guests. Um, but one of the uh, one of the events that's all with our uh, local writers, um, and is really great concept. It's called Death in the Digital Age. So this event is all about what happens after we die and how does technology play into this. So we have an academic uh, who's uh, is an expert in post-death technology. Um, and we have a novelist who's written uh, a story about um, a young woman who dies and then what happens to her life online after that. So coming at this topic from very different directions. Um, but it's something that as we have more of our life online and as more of us have a digital presence, what happens once we die and how are we remembered by other people? Can you delete your digital profile once you die? Well, I think that would be a pity because the, the, a lot of the authors coming out that I'm really interested in seeing have used your digital, well, your past, as the throw-off to write a story. We've got um, Tracy Chevalier with the girl who came to our knowledge with the girl with a pearl earring and Joyce Carol Oates, American writer, and Hannah Kent. See, she also sort of went into the Irish past to write mm. The Good People. And I've got to say, Rachel Leary here, who went into the bushranger history of Tasmania. And found out how yeah. uh, bushrangers went to China. So, you know, we can talk about all this newfangled re- revolution and stuff and, and how it's there, but to reflect on things in the past to make them still relevant to the human context now is important. Mm. And it's really not that long ago in the past, a lot of the things we're talking about. Well, Australia's identity, Australia's history, is a very young history, relatively, uh, when you look at the rest of the world. Yeah, very much so. Mm. And a lot of things haven't changed. It seems that a lot of men are still in control. (laughs) Oh, now, as the only male representative (laughs) in this studio at the moment, I feel victimised here. We're doing our best, Jan. We're doing our best. But, I mean, the festival um, is a a forum for addressing a lot of these issues because, I mean, there's another one, uh, Beyond Clichés, Women, Religion and Culture, because women are addressing their identity in a range of cultures, not just in Australia, but in the Muslim world and a whole range of areas. Uh, Yeah, so that event, um, Beyond Clichés, is with uh, Susan Carland, uh, who's 
um, written a book about uh, sexism and I guess the perceptions of Islam uh, in the West that it's perceived um, as to be uh, sexist. And so she's addressing those misconceptions. Um, and also Amal Awad, who's written a book about um, the, all the cliches about um, Arab women. And so together they're talking about um, their own identities and their own experiences in their lives, but also from research because they're both uh, they've both done quite a lot of research for these books, and so it's also about um, not conflating an, an Arab and a Muslim experience, um, and also about how women in particular experience the world through these lenses. I mean, and, we're going to run out of time oh, because yeah. there are free events with mm. the Melbourne Writers Festival. There are book launches. There's a schools program. We can't. We haven't got time to talk about it all. But the dates of the festival, Jessica. The festival starts tomorrow, tomorrow <gasps> night, with our opening night keynote with Kim Scott. So tomorrow, um, the twenty fifth of August, and runs right through until next weekend on Sunday, the third of September. So. Buy your tickets now online for the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Yes, and uh, when you hear all about revelation, Revolution and you want a historical fiction, just to top it off, don't forget Rachel Leary's book, Bridget Crack, published by Alan and Unwin. And that takes us out for another week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.